0: 1 John, chapter 3, starting at verse 10. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. For this is the message you heard from the beginning, we should love one another, Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brother's were righteous. Do not be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, How can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is how we know that we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And receive from him anything we ask, because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. And this is his command, to believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. The one who keeps God's commands lives in him, and he in them. And this is how we know that he lives in us. We know it by the Spirit he gave us. This is God's word.
1: If you're joining us now, we're jumping back into 1 John. Uh, We looked at the first half of the book in the autumn, and we'll spend the next, I think, six weeks or so. I think it's about six weeks until we get to the end. Slightly punchy passage, 1 John 3. Let me lead us in prayer as we look at this together. Father, we thank you that your prayer... Christian believers, for your children, is that we come before you with confidence. We come before you assured of your love for us, assured of our welcome at your throne, assured of your answering our prayers. And so we thank you for the realism of uh, this little section of this letter, that sometimes we struggle with that. Father, would you this evening help us to If we're Christian believers, persuade our hearts of your love for us and come before you with confidence, we pray. Amen. That, I guess, is the question of uh, 1 John chapter 3. What condition is your heart in? Probably once a week or so, I will uh, climb aboard a cross trainer and uh, push and pull and wheeze my way through 10K or something like that. And uh, inevitably, at some point during that uh, three-hour wind- uh, window, not quite, um, uh, the machine will flash up, caution, heart rate dangerously high. Uh, I don't know what you would do if uh, the machine said that to you. For myself, I tend to ignore it and uh, think, what do you know? Uh, I'm much fitter than you, uh, machine, would wonder. Because I don't know, how you, How does the machine know that? Okay, you, you, I can tell it my weight as I climb on board. I can tell it my uh, age. But still, your heart varies. I mean, if, whatever it is, 180 beats per minute, and it says dangerous, dangerous. If you've got angina, a heart condition... And it flashes up, danger, danger, 180 beats per minute. What well, for goodness sake, get off the machine. What are you doing got there for a start? You're going to die. Uh, you've got a heart condition. It's not functioning well. If you're Mo Farah, you can presumably run the thing up to 250 beats per minute and more. You can break the machine till steam comes wheezing out the sides and the machine just flashes up on its screen. I give up. I give up. Because your heart is great if you're Mo Farah. So when you get a warning such as that, what do you do with it? How seriously do you take it? You kind of got to know what condition your heart's in in order to hear the warning correctly. So let me be very lazy and say, uh, let me put it different sorts of hearts there may be in the room. This is very lazy, broad brush. So there's much more of a spectrum than this, of course, but you might have those who are, firstly, who are, who are tender hearted. And they know the things they've done wrong even today. And highly conscious of how they disappoint the Lord and fail. And so live much of their lives thinking, well, I'm a disappointment to the Lord. There'll be those who are tender hearted. I guess right at the other end, there'll be those who are very hard of conscience and hard hearted. And no matter what they do, they still think they're fine. So, uh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a cat burglar, and uh, most nights I go out and, and, uh, and steal diamonds, really, as a Christian. Yeah, yeah, God forgives it. It's fine. He likes a bit of bling. And um, so I'm fine. There's no, no problem. Uh, sometimes it's a bit, you know, last night I got caught, so I had to murder the bloke. But that's right, God forgives me, so I'm fine with the Lord. Well, maybe not, at that end of the spectrum. Maybe your conscience is a bit too thick. Your skin too thick, your conscience too hard. So you might have hard conscience, tender conscience. And somewhere in the middle, a a bunch of people who, I don't know how you might phrase it, you might call it gospel-hearted. You understand the Christian faith. You you know you're a sinner and you know you do things which fail the Lord. But you know you're forgiven. And so you rejoice in your forgiveness. And you try. You, You try to serve him faithfully. Now, that's a pathetically polarized sort of uh, three positions. But all I'm saying is, when John says, does your heart condemn you? Well, you've got to kind of know what person you are in order to hear that rightly. As elsewhere, the scriptures would put it, Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? So how do we go about that then? How do we objectively assess whether our hearts are right before the Lord and therefore come before him with confidence, which is what he desires? Verse 21, dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Wonderful. How do we go about that? what to say tonight they were returning to uh, to this letter uh, the first letter that john wrote uh, and he wrote it to christians who are unsettled in the first century and what's taken place is in this church there's been a split and let's say uh, a third of the church have gone off and they keep saying to their friends back so imagine this happened a, a third uh, I think last time it was that. So this third, you all go off and uh, heretics and uh, go off and um, off you go. And you write back and text back and, and email back to the other two thirds. Well, you're losers. We've got a superior spirituality. We have a greater anointing upon us is the phrase they use in chapter two. We have a much richer experience of the Lord than you losers. You're being held back. And so John is writing to this two-thirds to say, you are the real deal. Don't be unsettled by them. Don't be thrown. You're the real deal. So you get a a pretty good purpose statement in the letter, chapter 5, verse 13. It's not a bad summary of the letter. Do turn up and look at it. Chapter 5, verse 13. Here's John's purpose in writing. 5.13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that, here's why, you may know you have eternal life. You may know. I write these things to you who believe in the Son of God, so that you may know you have eternal life. In other words, clearly it must be possible to be a Christian who believes in Jesus Christ and not know you've got eternal life. Because he's writing to bring those two together. Okay. John is saying it's quite possible to be a Christian trusting in Jesus Christ. But be very nervous about that. Have no assurance of your faith. Have no confidence when you come before the Lord. And he's saying, good. God doesn't want it to be that way. Let's draw together a, 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 a salvation with assurance. Let's pull those two together. Because I want you, the Lord wants you to be confident before the Lord. Broadly in the letter, there are three main marks of genuine faith. Uh, there's orthodoxy, you believe the right things, obedience, you do what God says, and love. You love brothers and sisters uh, within the church. But the tone of the letter is not uh, uh, an exam or critical. So it's not that John comes to them essentially and says, have you got, um, in your cupboards at home, have you got, or in your fridge rather, in your fridge at home, have you got milk? Have you? Have you? Have you, have you got eggs? Have you looked recently? Do you have eggs? Butter? Do you have butter in your fridge? That's not the tone of the letter. He's coming to Christians he knows and saying, hey, look, I know you guys. I've been in your fridge, bizarrely. I know. I know you've got eggs in your fridge. I know you've got butter. I know you've got milk. So you have all you need for a omelette. You have all you need. And so, so in this letter, he comes to the church, he writes to the church and say, hey, look, don't be thrown, don't be unsettled, you guys. So I'll come back to you in a moment. The, um, don't be unsettled. You do believe the right things. You do obey the Lord. You do love one another. You're the real deal, is the tone of it. It's a word of reassurance for them. John wants to show these believers that they have orthodoxy, obedience, love, and for them to be encouraged. Now, back in chapter 3, it's a strange little section, particularly where it picks up at verse 19, because it's all about making sure our hearts are right before the Lord. That's the issue. So you see it... um, the word, little word for heart, it doesn't appear anywhere else in the letter. And yet, all of a sudden, in this section, we get it four times. Verse 19 of chapter 3. This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts. He knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God. John wants Christian believers in their hearts To be confident. So that when you look up and when you think of the Lord, you're confident that he hears you, that he answers your prayers, that he loves you, that he forgives you, that you're the real deal, that you're a genuine Christian lacking nothing. That is the desire. And before we get to that, verses 11 to 18 are providing somewhat of the ammunition to persuade your hearts. Now, tangent, we'll get to it at the end. But in the letter of 1 John, actually how you assure yourself that your, you're genuine Christian is complicated. It's nuanced. But here, 11 to 18, are really focusing on one aspect of it. Do you love your brothers and sisters if you're a Christian? That's the issue. But John writes to this crowd and says, I know you do. I know you do. He wants it to be reassuring. So look, I've chopped it this way. They may not be the best to put it as imperatives, but I've done it, so it's a bit late. Uh, verses um, ten to fifteen, then uh, don't, or eleven to fifteen, don't hate from envy. Uh, verses sixteen to eighteen, do love in action. And therefore, when you've got those two in place, persuade your heart. Okay. Verses eleven to fifteen, then first of all, don't hate from envy. That's what the world does. John essentially says uh, there's the church uh, and there's the group who have left the church and we might as well just call them the world. They're worldly. And that's what he's talking about here, a worldly response to other people. Chapter three, verse 11. Don't hate from envy. Verse 11. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one. And murdered his brother. Okay. So verse 11, here's the message. Pretty basic Christianity, 101 in one sense. If you become a Christian, you love one another. Pretty basic. Let's put it negatively. Don't be like Cain. Golly, who belongs to the evil one. Or don't be like the world, he'd say. Now, if you remember from the autumn, if you're joining us tonight, John is very black and white in how he uses his language. So he can say, look, if you're not a Christian loving your brothers and sisters, then you do belong to the world, and you belong to the evil one, the devil, and you're a hater. Now, that is pretty binary, but that's just how he's using that language. And can we kind of get that? Don't be too thrown by that. Um... Someone might come along and say, "I belong to the Labour Party," and you say to them, "Well, that's quite a small crowd, these." No, you wouldn't say that. Yeah, um, uh, I belong. Sorry, Uh, I belong to the Labour Party, Uh, and you think, "Okay, I kind of know." Then you, I kind of know what that means. You're sort of left-leaning on on some issues, but there's a pretty broad spectrum within the Labour Party. You know, Jeremy Corbyn is not really not the same as a Tony Blair figure. You know, there's quite a broad spectrum, even within the one group. Or someone might come along and say, I'm a member of the Tory party. And uh, you say, well, okay, I kind of know which way you lean. You you, you lean right. But again, there's a pretty broad spectrum within that one party, between the sort of gung-ho Brexiteers and a uh, a sort of one-nation Tory. Um, uh, there's, There's a broad spectrum there. But you kind of know what they stand for. And you get the same here. So John says, Look, you're either a Christian who belongs to the Lord, or you're not. You belong to the world, or the evil one. I can put it in those terms. Now, there's a really broad spectrum. So you could belong to the world and be someone who is just delightful. You still belong to the world, that is, you don't follow Jesus, but you're delightful. Or you could belong to the world and be utterly depraved. There's a broad spectrum going on. But it is, in the end, binary. As far as John is concerned, and indeed the Bible is concerned, the dividing line in humanity is between those who say, Lord Jesus, thy will be done. And those who say, Stuff God, my will be done. Or stuff Jesus, my will be done. And that is the dividing line between, in humanity really, thy will be done, I follow you Lord, my will be done. There's a spectrum about how people do that. But in the end, it's binary, that's what he's saying. So John would say, "Uh, don't be like Cain, verse 12. Don't be like Cain who belonged to the evil one. And murdered his brother. That's quite a long way along the spectrum of uh, belonging to the world, okay? Hopefully not many murderers here. But don't be like him, he'd say. Now, if you, if you know your Genesis story, Genesis chapter 4, uh, getting there. Uh, many will be getting there shortly in, in, in Bible studies. Cain belongs to the world. Cain says, my will be done. He treats God a little bit like a fairy godmother. Look, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do one or two obedient things for you, and then you owe me, Lord. You, you, on my terms, I'll relate to you. And like his brother, Abel, who trusts the Lord. Cain is my will be done. Abel is not. He's thy will be done. He follows the Lord. So Abel trusts the Lord, offers sacrifices by faith. Cain is envious. Cain is bitter. Cain hates his brother. Cain murders his brother. Don't be like Cain. And most of you sit here this evening and say, I'm all right, actually. Sibling murder is not top of my list of things I do wrong. But of course, he does push it a little bit further. Because he's going to say in verse 15, oh, look, anyone who hates a brother or a sister is a murderer. Oh, Look, but don't be a murderer like Cain. Uh, And verse 13, don't be surprised, my brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. Because look, the false Christians, they've left the church, they've joined the world. So don't be surprised they dislike you. But look, here's the but, verse 14. Here's the word of reassurance in verse 14. We know that we've passed from death to life. We know we're Christians because we love each other. And anyone who doesn't love remains in death. So John writes to the Christians and says, Look, the, the, the way you love one another, the way you sacrifice for one another, that is a sign that you've passed from death to life. You belong to the world, now you belong to Christ. And, and how you treat one another is a really good indicator of that, he says, Verse 15 is a bit unsettling anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. You know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. And again, John is black and white. And we read that and say, well, yeah, but we live in the gray, don't we? A little bit. You know, I, I don't hate anyone here, but they're kind of really annoying uh, and profoundly irritating. And actually, there have been moments where I have really hated someone who's a Christian which I think presumably John would say, well, just be careful on that. Be careful which direction you're walking in. If you harbor envy against people at church, well, just sort that out. Watch out. If you find yourself thinking, grrr, I find this person really annoying because God has blessed them with a job, which I'd quite like, and a spouse, which i quite like that, with healthy and family. and Grr. Well, just don't walk down that path. Don't walk down the path of envy because for Cain, that took him in a bad way. If you cherish anger in your head, if you have a sort of mental voodoo doll of someone you stick pins in, don't do that. Don't do that. That's not what Christians do. So stop it, John would say. If you're holding on to hatred, that's just not what Christians do. You need to sort that out. You need to address it. So don't hate from envy. But by contrast, do love in action, verses 16 to 18. Here love is seen in action. Very lovely. This is how we know what love is, verse 16. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, well, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Here's true love. True love is life-giving, not life-taking. That's what it does. Of course, there's a bit of a contrast here. Verse 16 sort of soars on the heights, doesn't it? This is how we know what love is. Jesus. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And verses 17 to 18, slightly grounded with a bump. So therefore be generous towards other people. All um, oh, right. But the point is, I guess he's saying, of course, verse 18. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. Talk is cheap. It is very easy to talk about, oh, I care for others. Yeah, I love, I love church. I love my church. Very good. Where's your money? Where's your time when someone is hurting? Where are those things? Yeah, okay. Good for you. Talk is cheap. That's John's point. Now, clearly, he's referring to the group who've who've left the church and said, yeah, they talk loads about love. Hey, come join our church. There's loads of love here, but they don't look after one another. You guys do. I'm so sorry. It's just for this evening. (laughs) Next week, we'll switch it around. Um, uh, so don't sit the other side. Then you'll be, then you'll be really picked upon. Um, now, you guys, you really do care for one another. Practically, you, you do. Uh, and that's because you're the real deal. He's saying, look, Christians, can't, you can't close your heart to the needy brother or sister and still claim that the love of God is in you. You can't just come to church but emotionally live in a gated community and keep yourself to yourself. You can't do that. That's not what Christians do. There's no indication of new life within you. Now look, let me just go off a little three-minute tangent. This is not John's point, but let me just go off on one. I think I am more privileged than most to see this sort of practical care of actions and in truth than many because these sort of things, they filter their way through. So I'm fully aware of people who have given thousands of pounds to others, who've paid off mortgages for other people when they've been unemployed, who've paid rent on flats because these people just couldn't have made it that month. It just happens. People who have thought, oh, that girl, she suffered a lot. She needs counseling. She can't afford it. I'll pay. There are some here who have employed members of the church family in their offices and they have absolutely no need. They sort of manufacture a job for them for three months, six months in order to give them something to do so they don't get demoralized while they're unemployed. So they can apply for jobs and say they're in work and they just don't need them and it's just a drain upon the company. It's just really generous. Of course, there are plenty here who uh, gang together and provide meals when people are are sick uh, meals when people have newborns, and then there 's chaos, yeah, there's all those sort of things take place. There are numbers, so one or two here have just given their cars away. I bought a new car, and what shall I do i 'm just going to give this car to this family because it make their life so much easier and Of course, you can sit there and say well i 'd give a car away if I was loaded. Now these people are not loaded. it hurts. There is a cost. You know, I see this more than most. It's just lovely. It's lovely. You know, dear Trevor Clarkson, no longer with us on a Sunday night because he's just not physically well enough to come. And so the gang of whatever it is, 30 who go and visit him twice a week and do his washing uh, and take him food and take him meals and go and read the Bible with him. It's fabulous. And these things do go on all the time. It's great. Working out how you do it is complicated sometimes. So, verse 17 uh, if anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, there's got to be some relationship here. These things generally work best in, in, in small groups when you know people, home groups. I, I hope most would know we do operate at church a deacon's fund. In times of adversity, it can be accessed through small group leaders. That is never purely financial assistance. It's not just a checkbook. It always comes with practical assistance and budgeting and planning and what are we going to do to make sure this doesn't happen and and, and get you out of the mess. All those things go together. Because love actually is highly intelligent. Actually, it isn't that hard to write a check sometimes. But love is intelligent. It says, what does this person need? What does my brother and sister and material need require right now? Yeah, they need stuff, money, but that's only a short-term fix. How do you get out of that? And that's what we want to try and provide. Part of the cost of love is being involved in the messiness of other people's lives. Christians love sacrificially. And John is saying to his audience, you guys do that. I see that in you. And so, last thing, persuade your heart. So you come before the Lord with confidence. Persuade your heart. Verse 19, this is how we know that we belong to the truth. This is obviously referring back to verse 18, to the love in action. Here is one criterion then to assess the state of our hearts. This is how we know we belong to the truth and how we set our hearts at rest in his presence. If our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. Dear friends, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have confidence before God and receive from him anything we ask. Now, it's a dense little section, but the scenario is this. The Christian sits with their head in their hands and thinks, how can God love me? How can I be a Christian when I, when I think like that, when I act like that, when I do like that? And John says, well, let's just take a step back and think about the whole of your life. You do love other people, don't you? It's the main weapon here. So, this is, just to be clear, this is the courtroom of assurance he's talking about, not salvation. So, I've got a scrappy, a scrappy slide. Have we got that one? It just about sort of comes out. Um, apologies. So, um, here's the sort of scrappy courtroom, if you can make it out. There's a judge who is God. There's a prosecution, there's a defense, and in the dock is your heart. And what he's describing here is, well, what do we do? Verse 20, if our hearts condemn us. And so the heart is, even though the heart is in the dock, it's feeding information to the prosecution. This is the courtroom. it's anyway, feeding information to the prosecution saying, yeah, but you have unworthy thoughts. Look at your anger this week. Look at your lust this week. Look at your ingratitude this week. And the the heart, even though it's in the dog, is feeding lines to the prosecution. Now, remember, this is the courtroom of assurance. So verse 20, we're told "Look, God is greater than our hearts. So there's God ignoring everything you're saying. Because God sits there and says, I know the reality. I know you're a believer. So I'm just going to ignore all these little murmurings. But John says, what you need to do is just look at how you love other people. And actually, there is great evidence for the defense as well. It's the courtroom of assurance. John wants the Christians to know, yes, you're saved. But I want you not to be uncertain of that. I want you to have confidence God knows you're saved, verse 20. He knows better than your hearts. He reads things perfectly. But I want you to look at how you treat others and and therefore feed evidence to the defense. Actually, you're right. You are a Christian. You're the real deal. This phrase, we want to set our hearts at rest, is a bit overly passive. It's, It's literally persuade, convince the heart. You want to convince the heart with how you're living. And so verse 21, if you do this, dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, if you look at how you treat other people and think, well, do you know what? There, there is evidence that I'm all right as a Christian, you know. If your heart doesn't condemn you, we well, have confidence before God. We receive from him anything we ask because we keep his commands and do what pleases him. Well, that's lovely. We'll pray with confidence and receive answers because we know in our experience, we know in our hearts that God loves us. Do you see there is a difference between God's verdict. He knows. Verse 20. He knows those who trust in Christ. But sometimes we just think. Oh, I don't know. Does he really love me? And John says look at how you treat other people. That's one indication of that. Look our prayers never merit answers. But when you obey the Lord. In how you treat other people in particular and love others, that just just gives you real confidence in how you pray. You want to persuade your heart. Now we get to this a little bit of nuance. That's that's really the guts of it. But John doesn't want to end there because I think presumably some of his audience and presumably some here tonight are saying, okay, yeah, yeah. so sometimes I do wonder, does God love me? And and uh, I don't know, am I, am I the real deal as a Christian? So I, I, my life is... Uh, and John says, all you need to remember is look at how you treat other people and that will give you real confidence you're a Christian. And of course, some here think, y- uh, ooh, um I'm not sure the evidence is brilliant how I treat other people, how I care for others. And at that point, John says, well, assurance before the Lord, you rested upon lots of different poles. He gives you four poles. Look, here are the four things in the whole letter, and he summarizes them here. Four things you rest your, your assurance upon. Let me look down with me. So verse 21, let me read from there. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, we have confidence before God. We receive from him anything we ask Because we keep his commands, do what pleases him. And this is his command. Four things. One, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. Do you do that? Do you know, verse 16, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for me? Can you say that? That's one peg in the ground of assurance. Two, uh, uh, in verse 23, you love one another. As he commanded us. Do you do that? Do you love other Christians? Do you sacrificially give when they need it? That's a second pole of assurance. Three. Verse 24. Just the one who keeps God's commands lives in him and he in them. Do you obey the Bible? Do you obey what God says in the scriptures? That's a third pole of assurance. And then four. We know this. And this is how we know he lives in us. We know it by the spirit he gave us. Do you know the testimony of the spirit within? And we think much more about that next week. Chapter 4, 1 to 6. So those are your four poles upon which to rest assurance, says John. Do you trust that Jesus Christ has died for you? That is by far and away the most important. But then do you love other Christians? Indeed, not just in word. And do you obey the Lord? Do you know the Spirit's witness within? Those are the four. Okay, step back. What then do you do if you're a Christian and you start to pray and you think, I don't think the Lord listens to me. I feel embarrassed trying to pray to the Lord when I've lived my life this way for the past week. Month, year, I'm just struggling to pray and expect him to listen to me. What do you do? Well, two things. One, look, review the evidence. Just don't just listen to the prosecution. Just look around at how you're living the Christian life. And sometimes you do need to ask others. Uh, many years ago, um, my wife was in hospital, Kerry, for about two months, uh, so pretty unwell. Every day, the, uh, the trolley would come round, and the nurse would take her blood pressure having to be with her one day, and this is after about six weeks, she kind of knew the range of her blood pressure by this time, and a student nurse, hello, I'm a student nurse, um, come to take your blood pressure, very good, took it, okay, you're la over la, uh, and my wife said, mm, you might want to do that again. I think if that's true, I'm dead. So, how about we have another go? Oh, sorry. And um, uh, let's have another go. And uh, she was fine in a some more sensible range. Sometimes you just have to say, really? Really? And so you sit there and you try and, oh, Lord, I, oh, you're, you're not going to listen to me. Really? Just review the evidence, uh, perhaps, a little bit. If your heart says condemned, take another look. Ask another Christian. You see, you read this and think, John expects Christians to have wobbles. And think, go, oh, oh, am I really a Christian? Oh, I don't know. He expects that. That's why he's written the letter. And he says, don't, just review the whole evidence of your Christian life. At at the most basic level, sometimes we do get into a tiz. And you need to go back to real basics. As I say, four pillars he talks about that you can build assurance upon. The most important is, or chapter 3, verse 16. Jesus Christ lay down his life for me, the Christian says. Or back in the autumn, we looked at chapter 2. Worth turning back. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My dear children... I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You just have to go back to that. There are four poles of assurance, says John, and Chapter 3, mostly I want to talk about how you love one another. But sometimes you just need to go back to real basics. Do I trust that Jesus died for my sin? Not just generally, but do I say, I'm a sinner. I've done things wrong. I'm essentially self-absorbed. I live much of my life thinking my will be done. But I regret it. I repent of it. I trust that Jesus died in my place to pay for all I've done wrong. And now, falteringly, stumblingly, I'm trying to say, Lord, thy will be done. Now I trust in Christ. Do you believe that? Come before the Lord with confidence. Let me do this in prayer. Our Father, you know the the hearts of each man and woman gathered here tonight. You know how we live. You know whether or not we do trust in you. And so, Father, our prayer is that you would help us see clearly where we stand before you. Father, overwhelmingly, I'm sure, for, for the bulk of people here tonight, they would say, yeah, I do trust that Jesus has died for me. I do try to love the brothers and sisters, indeed, not just verbally. I I, I do try to obey you. And so, Father, knowing those things, would our hearts persuade us, would we persuade our hearts that always you're listening, that you delight to answer our prayers with good things? Father, for some who are really very uncertain uh, whether that's true of them, Father, if there are some here tonight who are not yet Christians, would that become clear to them? For those who are struggling and wondering, would their friends be of help to them? Father, please would we leave here tonight clear upon the state of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.